Let's first, though, dive in to something that seems like a rather Ontario-based subject, uh, but it has decidedly national impact, certainly according to our first guest, uh, if all Canadians don't pay very close attention here. And I've got to, I, I'm going to lay the groundwork. I'm going to tell the story a little bit here. So let me bring in one of my favorite all-time columnists, contributing columnist at the Washington Post and host of Open to Debate podcast. He's an author of Too Dumb for Democracy, and he's a researcher. He is, of course, our friend David Mosscrop joining us on the line. Hi, David. Good morning. Good to have you on here. And I know you've got a keen eye on the press briefing, the QP briefing. Uh, the leaders are supposed to be speaking to to respond to a bunch of stuff that's happened. So I'm going to play a few clips here and then you can help set the table of what's been going on over these last few weeks, really, and and but really in earnest the last five or six days. And we'll begin with the prime minister here. This is this is Justin Trudeau basically saying, yeah, you know what? Canadians should be worried about the non, notwithstanding clause being used in Ontario to force teachers and education workers, 55,000, some 55,000, back to work, forcing a contract on them. Have a listen. Canadians themselves should be extremely worried about the increased commonality of provincial governments using the notwithstanding clause preemptively to suspend their fundamental rights and freedoms. Okay, so that was the Prime Minister. And now we go to the Ontario QP President, Fred Hahn. He has had it. Have a listen. We know that we cannot have a government that legislates an entire collective agreement, remove, tries to remove our rights under the Constitution, tries to set aside the Human Rights Code, tries to And then in a rather surprise move, Premier Doug Ford, Ontario's Premier, made an announcement this morning that he will in fact rescind the measure if, if teachers go back. As a gesture of good faith, our government is willing to rescind the legislation. We're willing to rescind Section 33, but only if QP agrees to show a similar gesture of good faith by stopping their strike and letting our kids back into their classrooms. Following along on David Mosscrop's Twitter feed over the last number of days has been spectacular. David, let's let's unpack some of what we just heard there and how you've consumed it since the teachers were basically told, too bad, you don't have a deal, but you got to go to work. Well, yeah, you might hear my dog barking in the background. She's just as outraged as everyone. That's how yeah. bad it is. Even That's Sam just can't, as she can't handle it. So you might hear her in the background. Uh, it, it effectively boiled down to this. You know, 55,000 education support workers represented by QP in Ontario who make an average of uh, $39,000 a year were trying to bargain to, to get a fair deal uh, in, uh, by the way, at a time of, you know, affordability crisis. Uh, they haven't for years. So, you know, the asks uh, that, that they're making may seem extraordinary to some, but when you look at the sweep of the last 10 years, they're actually quite average at best, in fact, below average. So they're trying to play catch up. And Doug Ford essentially said, well, uh, we're going to preemptively say you can't strike. Now, that's against the, the law. It's unconstitutional. And so in order to do that, he had to vote, invoke the notwithstanding clause, which has only ever been invoked twice in Ontario's history, both times by Doug Ford. Uh, 
and it effectively says, well, you know what, that right to strike, not only is it abrogated, it's uh, preemptively abrogated. We're taking away from you before you even do it. So QB walked away from the table and said, well, to hell with you. We're going to do it anyway. And then all of a sudden they were joined by everybody else. If you're looking at the press conference today, there's an extraordinary number of unions up, uh, up on the stage there representing millions of private and public sector workers. And uh, here's the real twist. The public backed the unions. There's some data out of Abacus data, David Coletto, that showed that the, the overwhelming public support was on the side of the unions. And so uh, here we are today. Here we are today, indeed, and it's fascinating from the BC perspective. Uh, no stranger to job action and strikes and and strife when it comes to uh, the relationship between the government and the teachers. And again, teachers here were, were until a week and a bit ago among the lowest paid in the country, and now have a new deal in place to be ratified um, by incoming uh, BC teachers. Uh, Federation uh, Union President, Clint Johnston, uh, newly appointed in that deal coming out and and giving teachers here that sort of, well, not sort of, that solid foundation they've been looking for for decades. It, it has mm-hmm. been a long road to here. So, but it is that conversation. It is that meeting at the table. It is that mediation, that, that negotiation piece that is lost when a government uh, activates or pulls the notwithstanding clause lever. How dangerous is this, David? Well, it's extraordinarily dangerous. And, you know, look, the, the, the British Columbia government, incidentally, an NDP government, you'd expect better union politics from them, perhaps, but you'd probably be disappointed in, in practice. But, you know, they, they had also had to dealt with the BCGEU. It's not their first radio. They had a few uh, challenges with labor, but they never invoked the notwithstanding clause to override constitutional freedoms to try to prevent workers from exercising their right to strike. Now, if you don't have a right to strike, you don't really have effectively a right to collective bargain because you've got no leverage. It takes away that fundamental point of leverage that is absolutely essential to getting a fair deal for not just one union, but for all unions. It's the backbone of of labor action solidarity. Now, if you take that away, then you lose labor rights. And that's why so many unions across the country, incidentally, but particularly in Ontario, mobilized to support QP here because it wasn't just about 55,000 education workers making $39,000 a year on average. It was about the right of every worker across the entire country to bargain for a fair deal and strike if necessary. Because if all of a sudden governments can get away with saying, well, look, we're going to take away your right to strike preemptively by running roughshod over the Constitution, uh, the, the Charter of Rights, well, then all of a sudden every worker is vulnerable. So yeah. it was a real critical moment for the entire country because Doug Ford used it. But who's to say that Danielle Smith in Alberta wouldn't use it tomorrow or that, um, you know, Scott Moe wouldn't use it um, or, or um, so on down the line or the next premier of, of British Columbia. For that matter. Right. Probably not David Evie, but say it was a yeah. BC liberal. <laughs> right? And so yeah. it was a critical moment for everybody. Yeah, the normalization of what would in effect render unions... Um, futile? What's the what's the right word? I mean, it would just well, it, it would undercut them uh, that right substantially. Yeah. yeah, because it's essentially hey. saying, well, you know, now you've got to come and bargain with us. You've got no one else you can bargain with. We're the employer. By the way, you've got no leverage. Well, that's there's a serious power imbalance then. And then what are you going to do when there's a power imbalance like that? You've got nothing.
Jody Vance in for Mike Smith and the phone boards are lighting up for David Mosscrop. He is our guest, a contributing columnist with the Washington Post. He hosts Open to Debate podcast and is the author of the book Too Dumb for Democracy. And David, before the break, we were talking specifically about how Premier Doug Ford is now saying that he might rescind the measure of the uh, activation of the notwithstanding clause that basically ordered 55,000 education uh, teachers and education staff administration and what have you back to work on Friday. Um, they basically said, you know what, we're, we're standing up for our rights here as members of the QP Ontario union. Uh, many other unions have, have sort of come to the support of uh, these admin and teachers in Ontario. What do you say to those who might suggest that because of the pandemic and all the schooling that kids have missed out on, particularly in uh, in Australia, excuse me, Ontario, because BC kept schools open. Ontario did not. So is there an excuse to be found there? I think you would, if you ask any educator or educator support staff member, they would say, yeah, kids need to be in class. In fact, that's why we do what we do. Um, And that's why we want Doug Ford to offer folks a fair deal uh, because, you know, the education support workers, who are struggling to feed themselves, who have to, in some cases, rely on food banks, um, you know, ought to have a right to a reasonable life too. Yeah. And so getting kids in school isn't, is, is on, the onus is on the province to offer those folks a fair deal. I don't think you're going to find a single person who thinks that kids shouldn't be in school when it comes right. to the labor dispute. You're going to find a lot of people who disagree about whose fault it is that they're not. And incidentally, I'm just watching this unfold now. It looks like Bill 28, which is the, the bill that prevented uh, unions from striking, is going to be rescinded. It's going to be said that it was never law and that QP is uh, ending its strike action for now. And everyone's going back to the bargaining table. Well, that's good news. Bargaining table is where deals get made, not uh, on picket lines. Devin Vancouver, you're up first. Welcome to the show. Oh, hello. Thank you. Now, I do agree that uh, Ford went too far. But, boy, you know, the hypocrisy with all this outrage. I'm a visible minority in Quebec, Mr. Mosscroft. I cannot wear my turban to a job if I have if I work for the provincial government. So this selective outrage about, oh, my gosh, these rights are important here. Well, how about members of my family who are in Quebec whose rights have been completely trampled? Did you write a column about that? Did Trudeau take the provincial government to court? Uh, please advise. Uh, well, so, first of all, I just fully agree with you. Uh, the Quebec uh, law prohibiting the wearing of, of quote-unquote religious garb is uh, racist, shouldn't exist. Right. And I, I didn't, I don't think I did write about it. I shared things about it and boosted it on, on social media and, and shared my opposition. And in fact, specifically talked about how cowardly it was that provincial and federal governments weren't coming out in support of those who want to wear whatever they want to work in a hospital, to teach in a school, wherever it might be. Uh, the law is racist, shouldn't exist. And every politician in the country should be united against it. But they're scared because they don't want another unity crisis out of Quebec. It's a double standard. It's deeply unreasonable. I don't agree with the, I disagree with the caller at all. He's absolutely right. 
I appreciate the fact that you made that pivot a little off topic there, Dev. Thank you uh, uh, for for pivoting there for us, David. Back to the subject matter at hand of talking about the QP situation in Ontario. Ontario P- teachers and administrators certainly standing up for their rights when uh, Bill 28 uh, was, the lever was pulled on the notwithstanding clause that we now are, are hearing because the QP... Uh, um, press briefing has just is just underway here, and and things are very fluid and changing. But I want to get a couple more calls in here if I can. Joe in Vancouver, you're up next. Hey guys, um, yeah, it's quick things. Uh, one, I'm small business, not unionized, et cetera, et cetera. But in Canada, I mean, you can't take people's rights away like that. I know the clause exists, but it's it's not for stuff like it. It's a ridiculous excuse by the government. I've got a kid that's just out of school; they need to be in school. But we all say we want good education, so that starts with paying teachers decently so we get good teachers. Um, and quit using COVID as an excuse. Governments, get over it. It's done. If we're, if we're going to move past it, then move past it. And that means quit using it as an excuse for your policy decisions. Thanks, guys. Great call. Thank you for that, Joe. Mm-hmm. You know what? This went by way too fast, David. <laughs> I've only got 30 seconds to say goodbye to you and tell those who are waiting on the line to go to our buzz line. Leave your message there. 604-331-BUZZ. 604 331 2899. Thank you very much, my friend, for doing this. I appreciate you. Oh, let's do it again. My pleasure. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Time to talk a little bit about tomorrow's massive midterm elections in the United States. I you'd have to be living under a rock to have not seen a million ads over the last number of weeks, certainly uh even months. I want to talk through the perspectives of what has been uh, unfolding there, but a little audio first here from the current duly elected, not stolen president. Here's Joe Biden on exactly what is on the table tomorrow in the midterms. This election isn't a referendum. It's a choice. It's a choice between two fundamentally different visions of America. I've said from the beginning, my objective when I ran was to build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. And I tell you what, it's a fundamental shift and it's working compared to the mega, mega Republican trickle-down economics. And the uh, mega, mega Republican POV has been pretty consistently coming from this next soundbite's source. This is Kellyanne Conway talking about how she expects a good Republican night on Tuesday. People feel like they're drowning economically. They're looking for pockets of air. This is why you're going to have a good Republican night on Tuesday. And I think it's going to be a governing majority and a realignment for Hispanic voters and female voters who say, I gave the Democrats a chance. They've just ignored me. Ignoring the will of the voters and insulting half of the country is no way. I think, look, I think that the Democrats have enraged people. That's their strategy. Republicans have engaged people. That was Kellyanne Conway, and this is a very recognizable voice, the 44th president of the United States. Here's what Barack Obama says is up for the midterm elections. Midterms are no joke. Sometimes we get so so focused on the presidency. But I am here to tell you that our democracy works as a team sport. A president can't do stuff alone. That's not how our system is set up. Let's talk more about what might be unfolding over the next 24, 36 hours. We bring in Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini to the program. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. 
good to speak with you. There's so much to unpack here. Where should we begin? Well, I mean, look, we can start at the general state uh, of the race in that it is still a heavily unknown what is exactly going to play out here uh, tomorrow. And in that bite that you heard from Kellyanne Conway saying that, you know, Republicans really do believe that they are going to walk away with a victory here on Tuesday. It is historically not an inaccurate thing to say, because oftentimes in midterms, uh, the vote swings in the opposite direction of the person that is sitting in the White House. So historically on the trends, Republicans should be the ones to walk away with victory on Tuesday, whether it's in the House or potentially in the House and the Senate. But there are a lot of tight races right now, and this has not been the cakewalk Republicans have thought that it was going to be. So it really is up in the air just what we are going to see. There are a lot of close races. There are a lot of states that are being watched on. And because there's no president on this ticket, it's almost difficult to try and figure out which state is the one that needs to be watched. Right. So it's it's almost a head spinner for political nerds who like to follow along and what's happening. And, you know, we're Canadians. It does impact us in this country what happens south of the border, because uh, inevitably when I talk politics with you, Reggie, somebody will send me a note saying, why do you care? You're not. But we, we have to be cautious and, and co- conscient conscious of what is happening south of the border because we are partners in so much on a global scale what what do we see unfolding in in terms of if it's if it is the red wave versus the blue tsunami i mean they're they're both of these um i don't even know stances being forwarded you and i have talked about this before you see michael moore for example here is somebody who when donald trump was running for president and everybody thought there's no way that a reality tv show host is going to end up president of the united states and then michael moore kept saying he's going to win guys he's going to win guys michael moore has a Substack going right now where he is saying everybody needs to stop consuming the polls and the media because It is going to be a very different election. And he's mostly pointing to the fact that Roe v. Wade is on the ticket and women are going to come out in droves and particularly young women who perhaps weren't voters before. I do think that that is um, that is a possibility here. Uh, And and especially when it comes to polling, uh, you know, we've had two election cycles uh, with botched results. So it really is kind of hard to grasp onto the accuracy uh, of these polls that are going to either predict this red wave or this red tide or this blue tsunami or even just kind of a blue trickle here. Um, So, you know, you kind of have to to take these polls with a grain of salt. Uh, But what Michael Moore uh, is saying in in this substack is actually being repeated by some other Democratic strategists uh, throughout the day today, some of them who worked uh, on the Clinton campaigns. And they're looking at things like the early voting numbers, Jody. 41 million people have already cast a ballot. That breaks a record when it comes to midterms. Uh, And some of these strategists suggest that that could actually suppress the Republican vote. It could force some Republicans to simply stay at home because they themselves believe that the election system is rigged. Obviously, you know, that's an unknown. We won't know, you know, until either tomorrow or some days or weeks in the future when the votes are eventually cast here. Uh, But I think on the flip side, there is also a possibility here that there is a hidden Republican vote. You know, the polls haven't really been able to capture the entire landscape. Oftentimes, certain groups are left out. So while Democrats are kind of hoping or holding on to this belief, hey, 
maybe we are going to be able to keep at least a portion of Congress in our hands. There is also a real possibility here that Republicans say, well, look, all we need are a couple of seats to win. And when it comes to, as you mentioned, this, you know, how does this impact Canada, the U.S.? Well, think about it. If Republicans have some kind of strong grip on the legislative agenda in the U.S., that could do things like put protectionist policies in place. And all of a sudden now this does have a trickle up impact towards Canada. At the end of the day, there is a lot of unknown heading into tomorrow. So much at stake. Let's talk a little bit, Reggie, if you don't mind. We're with Re- Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington correspondent. If you don't mind, give us give us some perspective on some of the the bigger races that have been capturing the headlines. You know, the Dr. Oz versus Fetterman, the, the Warnock versus Walker, you know, the Pennsylvania and Georgias that have been the key battleground states. We've learned so much about U.S. politics over the last number of years. Give us a little bit of the Coles Nose version on what you see happening in, in those battleground states. For sure. And if we look back to just the 2020 election, uh, Pennsylvania and Georgia played key roles in what went down for a Biden win, along with a Democratic um, uh, majority when it came to the Senate. And these two states potentially hold a ticket at least to the Democratic majority or at least kind of things staying on that 50 50 um, uh, split uh, between both parties again when it comes to the Senate in Pennsylvania this is uh, John Fetterman this is the Democrats pick uh, a man who has suffered a health setback with a stroke earlier this year that Republicans have really seized on to say that he is not strong enough to be able to be in that position uh, to put somebody like Dr. Oz up Dr. Oz somebody who is obviously from New Jersey who you know rarely even lives in the state of Pennsylvania but has the backing of uh, former President Donald Trump, John Fetterman and Dr. Oz are in a neck and neck, um, you know, statistically tied race right now. Uh, and flipping one to, you know, if, if Democrats take that, that could potentially give them uh, a bit of a lift when it comes to what takes place in the Senate. But the other way to look at this is in Georgia, Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Obviously, Warnock is the incumbent in this race. Herschel Walker is a very flawed GOP candidate that much of the Republican Party is trying to back itself away from. This could wind up in a Senate runoff race where the determination is not made until December. And if all of a sudden we have someone like former President Donald Trump putting his toes into the 2024 race today, tomorrow, sometime in the next couple of weeks, if that goes to a runoff, that could further suppress Republican votes with Democrats coming out in droves in Georgia later this year in a runoff, which could again give the Democrats the possibility of retaining the Senate. It doesn't do much when you have a split government in Washington, but at least it would give Democrats control of the White House and one chamber. Those are simply two races. Arizona's a race to watch. Michigan is a race to watch. New York is a very close race to watch. All of them could have an impact on the control that the Democrats are able to keep or build upon in the next couple of years. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, continuing my chat with good friend Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, talking about the midterm elections happening tomorrow in the United States. Uh, a big day, Reggie, for, for so many in the U.S., but it feels bigger than almost ever before, which midterm elections typically, do they not typically fly a little more under the radar than what we're seeing in 2022? They do. 
uh, typically uh, because there's not a president uh, on the ticket. And while they will go out and stump for candidates, this is kind of the highest level on the ticket is the Senate or the House race. And then it trickles down to the dozens or hundreds or thousands of other things that people uh, are voting for. Uh, you know, one thing to remember kind of an off the side thing, uh, you know, there's a lot of positions that are uh, up for vote across the United right. States uh, in in, in uh, Harris County, where Houston is, the, the election ballot is 22 pages long and you're voting for things what? like coroners and sheriffs uh, and district attorneys. So there's a lot at stake in these midterm elections. When you're voting on a 22 page ballot, Reggie, do you have to fill out every column to 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 the degree or can you just go in and vote for the one person, you know? I mean, you can vote any way that you want. So, uh, you know, if you're voting just for a senator and you want to leave the rest of your right. your ballot blank, I mean, that, that would be up to you. But at the end of the day, it goes to show just how many political positions there are in the United States sure. that might not be political somewhere else, like the sheriff or like the coroner. Totally. But it, it's not a spoiled ballot if you don't try and find your way through all 22 pages, because that might be incredibly intimidating for some. Yeah, absolutely. It wouldn't be a, a spoiled ballot, uh, but it does go to show that there are um, a lot of things that are riding on these ballots that go far beyond just the kind of political impacts at the highest level when it comes to how federal law uh, may play out. But, you know, like you had mentioned right off the top here, there is a lot at stake here. And these yeah. are getting more uh, kind of focused right now because of the political climate around the U.S., whether it was the decision to overturn Roe, whether it is a fear for uh, U.S. democracy after what took place uh, on January. 6, there are a lot of reasons that people are going out to vote, but there potentially are reasons that people are not going out to vote, whether it's they don't like the candidate or they don't trust the system. That's what's making it so difficult to try and figure out exactly what might take place on Tuesday. I always find it very interesting when watching. I try and watch all the cable news outlets down there and get a feel for what everybody's talking about, listening to all of the the stumping and rallies and what have you and trying. And, and it's interesting to listen to how the rhetoric about it all being rigged and stolen and what have you is, is starting to grow from the Republican sides or the Trump rallies or the rallies that we see where Donald Trump's going out to endorse a candidate or what have you. And yet it's a, if, if the Republicans win, it's not rigged, but if the Democrats win, it is rigged. Is that, it feels I don't hear the I don't hear the Democrats saying that the elections are anything but fair, safe, democratic and effective. Yeah, and look, we've we've heard this before. We heard this in 2016. We heard this in 2020 uh, that the election is rigged before it is even held. That is ultimately what led to what took place on January 6th with the sacking uh, of the U.S. Capitol. This belief that if Republicans lose, uh, that the system must be turning against Republicans and Democrats somehow were able to go forward and, and and you know kind of quote unquote steal an election, even though it's bogus and it has been debunked repeatedly. Uh, you know, it, it it simply just a reality uh, amongst the political landscape here, which is why Republicans say if they win, they are going to do things to try and do oversight and investigation into election security to ensure that, you know, Republicans don't find themselves in this kind of losing position here. But it also then speaks to what Republicans may also want to do if they find themselves in a majority, which could be uh, just a series of investigations or a potential series of impeachments here. And we really could be in for a wild kind of investigative ride for the next two years if the U.S. finds itself in a position of being controlled at least partially by Republicans. So let's swing it the other way. If there is the unexpected blue tsunami, 
Um, will we see uh, Roe v. Wade codified? Will we see the end of gerrymandering so that you can map out in counties and states to, to lean in, in one direction or the other or the filibuster as well? Well, I mean, look, the filibuster is going to be ultimately what stands in the way of Democrats trying to do anything. And that's because you need 60 votes for something to pass in the Senate to get some kind of reform done. Uh, Democrats have had the the Senate for two years with their 50 plus one with the vice president. They chose to not get rid of the filibuster because they weren't able to overcome some uh, internal fighting within their own party, namely with right. uh, the senators from West Virginia uh, and from the U.S. Southwest, Kirsten Cinema. The form, the president right now has said if Democrats win, uh, codifying Roe will be the first thing to do. The only way to do that, though, will be to get rid of the filibuster and pass it with a simple 50 plus one uh, majority. They can try to right. do that. The problem is that they run the risk of if they lose the Senate in a couple of years, uh, then they potentially find themselves in a position of Republicans then passing whatever they want on a 50 plus one. So it's a delicate balance that Democrats are going to try to do. But at the end of the day, the party, the president, the leaders of the parties have said if there is some form of democratic stronghold that they are going to do what they can to protect not only the rights of Americans uh, when it comes to how they live their lives, but the rights of Americans when it comes to how they uh, want to carry out a vote. Um, there's a lot riding for Democrats here. Republicans, mm -hmm. obviously, they say there's a lot riding for them as well, especially when it comes to things like the economy. Both sides are going to say, here's what we are going to do for you. It's very different, though, when they've actually won to see if they're able to actually carry it out actually get it done. I've only got 30 seconds here, Reggie. And one of the things I worry about with you, my colleague, my good friend, uh, when the, you know, the riots at the Capitol, uh, that was terrifying. Are you concerned about security and safety for tomorrow where you are in Washington or elsewhere in the U.S.? Well, look, there's always going to be a concern, especially over the last couple of years of how, uh, you know, there's a potential for violence, whether it's in the U.S. or at polling stations around the country. There has been an increase in security, not just here in D.C., but right around uh, the United States. I think there is always a risk here, especially with the rhetoric that's pushed out across social media. Uh, you know, best thing for, for people to do is to just kind of keep aware uh, of the surroundings uh, around you. But at the end of the day, there is a kind of a hope here that this is going to be a problem-free vote on Tuesday. Again, another one of those unknowns. We won't know until it's happening. Reggie Cicchini, thank you for this. I appreciate you and your perspective. You. Hey there, Jody Vance with you. Time to talk dollars and cents. Your finances, my finances, everybody feeling the pinch of inflation. Many people feeling the pinch of the variable mortgage. Oh my goodness. We're talking finances and the finances of your home. But just before we dive into the latter, let's just dip into what the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister of Canada said on how we might be able to uh, tighten up in this time of inflation. And I think Canadian families are looking really closely at all of their expenses. I personally, as a mother and wife, look carefully at my credit card bill once a month. And last Sunday, I said to the kids, you're older now, you don't want to watch Disney anymore. Let's cut that Disney Plus subscription. So we cut it. Every little bit helps. And I think every mother in Canada is doing that right now. That 
not surprisingly, has landed Christian Freeland in somewhat of hot water. Just cancel your Disney Plus. It's a little deeper than that for so many millions of Canadians. I have some really good friends who are hardworking, penny-pinching, trying to be fiscally responsible with a variable mortgage that they have said, you know what, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make the payment on my variable mortgage thanks to uh, the interest rates that are spiking. So reaching out to my friend Tom Davidoff. He is the director of UBC Centre for Urban Economics and Real Estate at Sauter School of Business. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. What? Give me the lay of the land from Tom Davidoff. I mean, you always bring such perspective to what our costs are when it comes to real estate, what we spend, what we think we can afford versus what we are seeing happen with interest rates spiking, spiking as they are. Yeah, I mean, we've really entered a different uh, regime, if you like, than what we have been in for so long. You know, coming out of the great financial crisis, Really, you know, at least since the dot-com boom and bust, we've been in this era of incredibly low interest rates, which made it so attractive to borrow money and buy property. And that pushed up housing prices to extremely high levels at the same time that we have a ton of household formation and immigration. And so we just got these giant increases in prices. Rents got unaffordable, too. And that's where we were. Okay, and then along comes COVID and a a couple of things happen. Supply chains sort of get weirded out. And so there's a little inflation here and there. The federal government had to try to stimulate economies. So we didn't have a terrible shutdown. And we did great. You know, I mean, it's been really good uh, that we managed to get through this total catastrophe of a disease so far. You know, of course, people have suffered, people have lost businesses, but the economy didn't collapse and mostly people have been, you know, making a go of it. But uh, with the federal stimulus uh, throughout the world and with uh, supply chain problems and, of course, with the horrendous war in Ukraine uh, has come really bad inflation that we haven't seen, you know, since you and I were kids. And so, uh, you know, what what that means is uh, higher interest rates, much higher interest rates. Of course, general price increases. Uh, but in terms of the housing market, you know, what you can afford to pay for a home just dramatically falls uh, when you uh, are paying higher interest rates because you just qualify for a much smaller mortgage loan. And even if you do qualify for a loan, the economic cost is massively greater, right? I mean, the interest cost, yeah. which is most of the cost of owning a home, that was one and a half percent of the property value uh, a year ago. And now it's like five and a half percent. That's just a tr- huge difference. It's like a tripling of the true economic cost. What's a miracle to me uh, is we haven't seen really uh, that much decline in home prices, 10, 15 percent. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot less bad than it could have been. Right. And year over year, we saw home prices going up in such an inflated fashion, that bubble continuing to grow. I've lost count of the number of times you and I have had discussions about, is it going to burst now? Is it going to burst now? What about now? Maybe now. How about now? You know, and it just is that it's the burst has never been there, but what we're seeing now and Tom, what do we, what do we say about, uh, there, there was a new survey from the Canadian mortgage trends that I found that, um, that says that 
53% of Canadian mortgage borrowers are concerned about the prospect of higher monthly payments at renewal time. Like what happens in Canada? We hear often, uh, you know, it, typically American stories are like, I just had to turn in my keys. I just, just took the keys back to the bank and dropped them off. It's not how it works here in Canada, does it? Well, it's it's actually a little better in the U.S. in some ways for borrowers, I guess in two ways. One, I think the way you're talking about is, well, you know, you just default on the mortgage debt, walk away, and the bank, you know, loses out. You, but it's not so great in the U.S. to default on a mortgage, of course. In some no. places, uh, banks do have recourse to your other assets and can, can, you know, can pursue you in a bankruptcy or uh, just, just a judgment against your income. So, Mostly people who default have, have, you know, lost their jobs and can't pay as opposed to strategically don't want to pay because it's become unattractive. Here in Canada, though, uh, not only uh, for the most part can you not walk away from your mortgage debt, even if it's economically sensible to do so uh, without, you know, facing recourse to your other stuff. Uh, the other issue here is that we don't have that 30-year mortgage, which you can lock into. So you said, what, 53% of Canadians are worried about mortgage renewal. Well, I don't know what the other 47% are thinking right. about, but I think they should be worried, too. I mean, mm. you know, housing's at least a third of most people's expenses. And, uh, you know, you double or triple uh, interest rates. And that that's a big hit. And, yeah, you know, Disney Plus and, you know, maybe Crave, too. Maybe <laughs> Crave, to too? <gasps> Tom, Tom, what can we do if if we're sitting teetering on the edge of that that variable mortgage that, as you said, maybe maybe when the the house was purchased, it was free money. It was, you know, one point nine percent. And now it's, you know, five and a half and staring down who knows what in the months and years to come. Um, What what can be done? If anything. Right. So the good news is for most Canadians. Uh, even if you have a variable rate mortgage, your payments don't change much. You know, you're paying more interest, which means the same payment makes less of a principal payment. You may have to adjust up a bit if interest rates rise enough because the bank's not going to let you pay less mortgage every month than the interest you owe. Uh, And people talk about that trigger rate in that way. But mostly, you know, a lot of Canadian borrowers are either on fixed rates for five years or on variable rate mortgages, which have payments that don't change much. Some people have to increase payments uh, now. That that just depends on the agreement with your bank. But most people are okay for the short run uh, and are looking at in one year, two, three, however many years, our rates going to still be as high as they are today. And then what? So, of course, you know, the natural thing when you think something bad might happen down the road financially is to start saving in a precautionary way and say, you know, uh, how can I cut expenditures starting today uh, to plan for what could be a pretty dramatic negative change in my net income when rates rise? So, um, you know, the sooner you start saving, uh, the easier it is to make the adjustment. You know, if all of a sudden in one month you've got to come up with an extra thousand, two thousand bucks or more uh, in interest. Well, that that's a very difficult adjustment, of course, for most Canadians to make. Yeah, no kidding. And and when it comes to your crystal ball, obviously you don't have the answer to this because if you did, you wouldn't be talking to me. You'd be running the world. Where do you see things going in the near term and in the long term with the economics around interest rates? Is 
do, are we are we headed towards the D word? Are we going into a depression? Or are like you said, Canada has fared fairly well, all things considered, these last two and a half years of of COVID nineteen and and all the other uh, dominoes that have been playing into uh, what has led to where we are today. Um, how do you see th- things playing out moving forward? Well, we're sort of on a mechanical or actual bull with with recession. You know, how many rate increases can a fundamentally strong economy survive before people just really cut back on on investment firms, cut back, don't hire workers, there's unemployment, uh, nobody's buying homes, the trades are unemployed, right? I mean, that's what you worry about with all these rate increases. And it hasn't happened yet in, in a big way. And, you know, hopefully things resolve on the inflation front before uh, all of these rate increases have such a dampening effect on spending and investment uh, that that we do get into a nasty depression. And as you say, I don't have the crystal ball. I mean, I hope very much that that someone in Russia decides uh, to to, uh, get rid of the problem that that is Vladimir Putin and, and, and the Ukraine situation resolves as least horrendously as possible. Uh, but, you know, he's got a deep reservoir of evil and power. And uh, I think that war is a real problem. This winter's, you know, there's just a lot of bad stuff that's going to happen in Europe related mm-hmm. to inflation and energy prices uh, if it doesn't resolve, which, you know, I don't I don't think it will in the immediate run. Uh, but, you know, every day uh, that, that, you know, there's a chance that that, that, that could play itself out and uh, we, we get some respite there. I don't know if that would be enough to calm global inflation or if there's COVID-related uh, supply chain problems that also need to be sorted out. That's a bit more complicated. So, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. The one thing I will say is if you look at bond yields, right, you know, right now, short-term bond yields are as high or higher than long-term bond yields. And what that means is people aren't expecting interest rates you know, through inflation to keep on growing year in and year out for the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years. They think we're sort of as high as we're going to get uh, this year, and then rates will likely come down from there. So that gives me some optimism, you know, that the wisdom of the markets doesn't seem to be uh, that we're going to be in high interest rates, you know, for 8 or 10 years or something. And that is why we love to talk with you, Tom Davidoff. You bring such learned perspective to the table. Well, no surprise, you're director of UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate. But you're our friend and we appreciate you. Thank you for answering my my novice questions around this, but just trying to, to help each other uh, when it comes to feeling like we're stretched as thin as we can possibly be. There's there's some hope on the horizon and and having some strategy on on how to save in the near term to make sure that you can afford the next sort of bump in the road that we might face. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Boy, oh boy, phone lines lit up. You have stuff to talk about. and Let's get straight to you, Rick in Kamloops. Welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Not too bad. So I was spending upwards of $120 a month for for Prime. Yep. And, and Netflix and whatever, and I saw an ad on TV for a site, and I got it, and I'm paying eleven ninety nine a month, and I get everything that Netflix has, Disney Plus has, all of them. What's that? It's called Roboto. You get it on Google Play Store. Can you say that again? Your phone kind of clicked out. It's called Roboto? Rivoto, R-I-V-O-T-O, and you get it on Google Play Store. 
Thank you, Rick. I just wrote that down. Going to do a little due diligence. Thank you for the phone call and the tip. Let's go to Chris in Penticton. Welcome, Chris. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, I, I, I see the doom and gloom coming really quick, and we're going to be bolted over. But for me, you know, if I hadn't uh, moved up to Penticton when I retired, um, I would be hooped. Uh, because up in Penticton, everything is in walking distance because I've got good health. Nice, um, beautiful But, Penticton. you know, I've got two daughters that live in the lower mainland, and, you know, it's already hitting. My son-in-law got laid off, and it's oh, a no. start. And uh, people have to be aware. It's not going to be pretty, and there's going to be a lot of people hurt badly. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. one another. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you. Say hi to everybody in Penticton. Love it there. Brent in Victoria. Welcome to the show, Brent. What are your thoughts here? Uh, Hi. uh, Good morning, Judy. It's uh, it's, uh, Brent uh, Weatherman on Twitter. How are you doing? Um, Good, thanks. So, yeah, good. Um, Thanks for having me on. So, uh, yeah, I live on a fixed income, a person with disability. Uh, You know, I just buy all the basic staples and I can't really cut back. I don't have the Disney Plus or you know, um, crave or, or any of those extra little goodies, right, to really watch. And yeah, I just cable? try to stream. So I, I have cable, basic cable, right. but uh, even there, I, I kind of wonder, well, do I cut back? But if I cut back, well, you know, then I don't have internet. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I have. But I mean, buy the basic staples like oatmeal. I mean, it fills you up, makes you full, right? Holds you over yeah. for another meal. And I just, uh, my mom taught me my way o- I just had my oats for, for breakfast. You're speaking yeah, my language, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, my mom taught me. Uh, she grew up in the uh, in the Great uh, you know, re- Recession, and so uh, I kind of follow her footsteps on that. And I just tell people, like, you just have to cut back to the basics. You can get by. You just have to live within your means and just do the best you can. It's going to be a rough ride, but we will get through it, Jody. We will. 